Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Mark fifteen twenty one. as this passage continues, it says this. A passerby named Simon, who is from Cyrene, was coming from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Tonight, I want to invite us to picture this through the eyes of Simon. What it, would it have been like to have been the other man who carried the cross of Jesus? Simon from Cyrene, 783 miles away from Jerusalem by the paths that they would have taken to get there. A 32-day journey by the ways that they would have gone. He had come to Jerusalem most likely for the Passover festival, which did identify him as a Jewish man. He had come all this way to worship. And then that morning, he made the strangest decision of his life. He decided to go for a walk. And when he came back inside the city, he was grabbed and pulled into this mob that surely would have changed his life forever from that moment on. Simon, the other man who carried the cross. He was just walking by. He wasn't part of this. We're not told that he was a follower of Jesus at this point or that he was a part of the angry mob. He was just a guy who was outside of the city trying to go back to his Airbnb or his uncle's house and he got yanked into this incredible scene. He was neutral and perhaps even ignorant of what was going on. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Simon? Maybe he had seen some of what we just read. Maybe he had seen Jesus whipped. Maybe he had seen Jesus tried in front of Pilate or in front of the Sanhedrin. Maybe. We don't know. But we do know is that he saw Jesus. Jesus bloody, whipped, bleeding from his head, from his back. We know that he saw Jesus fall. Because why else would somebody need help carrying the cross? He was too weak to carry it himself at that point. We know that that's what he saw. I personally doubt Simon knew Jesus before that moment. But can you imagine what he saw when, as he was thrown down on the ground by this cross, he looked into Jesus' eyes, both of them there, as they picked up the cross? Can you imagine what he saw in Jesus' eyes in that moment as they once again pointed towards Golgotha? Can you imagine what he saw in Jesus? The fact that he walked with Jesus from this point on all the way to that hill meant that he saw this entire road stretched out from Jesus' vantage point. What a supremely unique way of looking at this entire story. He saw things that the rest of us never would have dreamed of seeing. He saw broken hearts and he saw arrogant yells. He saw mockery. He saw death in a brutal, up-close, personal, like terrifyingly personal way. He saw violence at a level that would give you nightmares for a long time. As As a man carrying the cross, I'm sure that he felt in some cruel way that he was now a part of what was going on. That when the yells came at Jesus, 
I mean, he's standing right next to him. You would have felt like they were coming at you too. The spitting, the yells, the, the, the anger, like it came at him as he was walking, carrying this cross next to Jesus. He was a part of everything that was going on. And the stations of the cross, the prayer and meditative journey that churches have done for hundreds of years in the season of Lent, Simon carrying the cross is the fifth station out of 14. It's really early on. He was there for much of this journey to the cross. He wasn't willing. He didn't ask for it. But he was an unwilling participant in the greatest Friday of them all, the Friday that Jesus died. And I think that his life was changed as he walked along that Good Friday road. And I want to talk about that this evening. So let's pray. Jesus, we just start off saying thank you. Thank you that we're here tonight because you did something incredible. You did something brutal. Uh, you did something astonishing. You allowed yourself to die in a terrible fashion for us. Thank you that you love us that much. I pray tonight as we look towards the cross that we will be overwhelmed by the reality and the depth of your love, that we'll be changed by it, that we'll walk out of here tonight knowing who you are just a little bit more and living our lives just a little bit differently. We love you, Jesus. Come and speak to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, and they offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. And then the soldiers nailed him to the cross, and they divided his clothes, and they threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. And a sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. And scripture was fulfilled that said he was counted among those who were rebels. In that moment, I would imagine that the, the primary emotions that anybody was feeling around the cross were not positive. There were no positive emotions going around. Things like shame, uh, extreme anger, violence, uh, suffering, grief, uh, a tremendous loss of hope. There's nothing positive about what they're feeling at that moment. But after the resurrection, after Jesus rose from the tomb, I can imagine people maybe like Simon looking at different sections of the Old Testament, reading it and saying, he actually was the Messiah. Like he actually was who he said he was. As they read things like uh, uh, Psalm 69, 21, they offer me sour wine for my thirst. And they would remember when the soldiers offered him uh, this wine mixed with myrrh, which was, sounds kind of gross. And then there's another part where they take a sponge soaked in sour wine and they put it on a stick and I'd offer it to them there. And they would remember those things and they would say, man, he actually was the Messiah. 
They would read Psalm 22 in the days, weeks, months, years to come. And they would read this, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. And they would remember the soldiers putting nails through Jesus' hands and through his feet. They would remember the soldiers sitting there and casting dice, lots, for his clothing, which was probably a normal enough thing back in the day. But they would remember that. They, they would remember the crowds mocking him and taunting him and saying, why don't you save yourself or call on Elijah or an angel or somebody to come and do the thing that you need to be done? If you're not strong enough, like do something now. They would remember his final cry before he died. I can picture Peter or John or maybe Simon reading Psalm 22 and saying, guys, you have to look at this. Come and look what it says. This thing, like I saw this happen. And this thing, this happened. And they would start comparing notes and saying, he actually was who he said he was. He actually was the Messiah. Guys, you got to look at this. Come and see. See who he actually was. You know, Jesus didn't die to fulfill prophecies, but by fulfilling prophecies, Jesus showed why he died. Because he was the Messiah, the one who came to save us, and he proved it on that day. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe it. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. Eugene Peterson is a pastor and author, and he wrote, The atmosphere is anything but solemn. Soldiers throwing dice for his clothes, passers-by taunt him. The Jewish leaders mock him. Crucifixion is a merciless fusion of shame and pain drawn out to the extremity. I picture Simon in this moment somewhere close to the cross and I cringe. Can you imagine like having to hear these things be said like a dude's hanging on a cross. Like even if you don't believe he is who he said he is, like he's dying in a painful way and you're like adding to it. I don't know if Simon would have felt shame because he was there with Jesus as he was dying. It's an awkward place to be. I don't know if he felt shame because he saw his religious leaders, the Pharisees, the priests, the, the rabbis coming and saying hurtful, hateful things like sneering and, and mocking a dying man. Did he feel shame at like his religious establishment in that moment? I could see that being part of the case. I wouldn't say that, thankfully, that I felt shame a lot in my life, but the times that I felt shame kind of stick out, you know, probably the same for you. You remember certain moments that were very shame-filled in your life. Uh, Benjamin Franklin has uh, a, a quote attributed to him, whatever is begun in anger ends in shame. And to be honest, I would say for me that most of my shame-filled moments did begin in anger. That is a real thing for me. There's been moments where immediately afterwards, I'm like, did I just do that? Did I just say that? Did that really, can I just like rewind, disappear, 
walk away, like go away for a week and then everybody will magically forget that this ever happened? Like, can I pull the words back inside of my mouth? No, no, there's no way to avoid this. Like I've, I, I connect uh, with Mr. Franklin on, on that. But when I think of those moments, I don't connect with Simon all that much. Who I do connect with is the Jewish religious leaders in the mob. And I look at them and I say, what did they feel just a couple hours later? You're mocking a dying man. You're acting that way at a man who's going to be gone. What did you feel when the anger and the self-righteousness and, and everything, when, when he was gone and all that was left was emptiness? What did you feel when you looked at, at nothing that was there to throw that at any longer? What, what did you feel in your heart in those moments? The mockery of Jesus did nothing for them other than to give them moments that I'm sure for many of them they looked back on and said, man, I wish I would have acted a little differently. Even if they didn't believe that he was who he said he was. Moments that they cringed on the inside. And then I wonder, when those moments hit, how did they feel when he died? At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eloi, Eloi, Lemek, Samachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought that he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Tim Keller wrote, that this forsakenness, this loss, was between the Father and the Son who had loved each other throughout all eternity. This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect, and Jesus was losing it. Why? The answer is for you, for me, and for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell instead on Jesus. At that moment, the only thing left was to acknowledge the reality of what they had seen. There's not much more to say when you've watched that happen. Verse 39, then the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died. He exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. For the Roman officer, for the disciples, and I wonder if for Simon, the only thing left at this point when they've watched all of this go on right in front of them was to look at Jesus as he breathed his last and say, wow, he actually was who he said he was. He was actually telling the truth. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. And they had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were all, already there. So when people's names are mentioned in the New Testament letters and in the Gospels, 
They're not just mentioned because more details make for a better story. That's usually not the case in case you're looking for tips on how to tell a better story. Don't include all the details. Not usually what it's there for. They're mentioned because they would be connected to the people who this was being written to. So the Gospel of Mark, written by a young man named Mark, perhaps a man who ran naked through the streets after his linen cloak got taken off of him. Uh, He wrote about his experiences as a young man following Jesus, and he also wrote the experiences of Peter, the most quoted disciple of them all. And he wrote this to the church in Rome, the Roman church uh, that potentially that Peter started, that Paul wrote to. Uh, this was who Mark wrote this letter to, this gospel to, so they would know who Jesus was and what Jesus was all about. And so he's writing this, and he includes the name of these women in there because they would have known who these women were. They connected to them. They could have said, oh, she was actually there. She could tell me about it. That's why he would include this info, which makes me wonder, why did Mark mention Simon's sons? Rufus and Alexander, why were they important to say their names? So I started thinking about it. Perhaps because they were known in the church in Rome. So Romans 16, 13 says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me also. What if this Rufus that Paul writes about here and his mother are none other than Simon's wife and son at a couple decades later in the church in Rome, who Mark mentions in his gospel. What if they're the same people? Some theologians have wondered if Simon called Niger in uh, Acts 13.1, which Niger means black, if that same Simon, who was a pastor in the church in Antioch with Paul and others, the first church that Paul pastored when he was a younger man, if that same Simon was Simon from Cyrene, an African town on the coast, a few hundred miles away from Jerusalem. What if that was the same person in both of those situations? And if so, wouldn't it make sense that Simon's wife could potentially become like a mother to Paul? They're on the same leadership team. They're a couple decades older than Paul. They would have had very intertwined life for those years that they were doing ministry together. What if that happened there? And what if Simon's son Rufus afterwards after he grew up and and went and did whatever he did, went to Rome and became a leader in the church there. What if Simon, the unwilling participant in this terrible, terrible story, the other person who carried Jesus's cross, what if he lived the rest of his life dramatically changed by what went on that day? What if we lived our lives dramatically changed by what went on that Good Friday all those years ago. Where would we even begin? Well, Jesus gave us a clue a little bit of time before he was crucified in Mark 8. If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Eugene Peterson wrote that there's only one gospel way to participate in Jesus's work Live a sacrificial life in Jesus' name. Jesus died for us so that we wouldn't have to endure what he endured. That doesn't mean death and suffering, unfortunately. That still happens. 
We know that. No one's immortal as much as we try. We still die. Plenty of people suffer. That is the reality. So what did he die so we didn't have to endure? He died so that we would never have to be forsaken by, abandoned by, completely cut off from God. He died so that there would always be an open way to connect with our Father who loves us. Our brokenness comes at a cost. And the good news is that Jesus paid that price for us. For you, for me, for all of us, he died. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you tonight that you did pay that price. I thank you that we have to never, we, we don't ever have to know what it's like to be forsaken by God. We don't have to know what that pain that you felt on that cross, his relationship was completely cut off when you died. We never have to know what that feels like. Because you paid. You made the, you opened the bridge. You covered the way. You made sure that we always had a way back. That the line of communication was always there. So Jesus, I just pray for us here tonight. Jesus, if there's any of us here who feel like we've been abandoned by you, who feel like we've been disconnected by you, I pray just right now that you would come and let us know that you're here. Come and speak personally to our hearts in a way that makes it clear that you are the one speaking. Thank you that you love us so much and that you gave up all for us. Help us to live lives where we're willing to carry up, pick up our own crosses, to follow you, to live our lives in sacrificial ways, reflecting your love in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.